We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. As we continue our study of Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts, we are going to consider the call to bear witness this morning. At the beginning of this book, Jesus tells his disciples that uh, they are to wait for the Spirit, and when they've received the Holy Spirit, they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's in chapter 1, verse 8. And the story of Acts is really the story of how those disciples were faithful to their commission to bear witness to Jesus. And in a very real way, we carry on that commission as the one holy Catholic and apostolic church today. We continue to bear witness. And this is challenging. A couple weeks ago, I was in a a lift on my way to the airport for an early morning flight, one of those flights that's far too early that you wish you didn't book after you did. That's why I was in a lift. And I was reading my Bible in the back seat because I hadn't had time for normal rhythms that morning. And then I was just kind of dialoguing with the Lord and felt compelled by him to engage the Lyft driver. So, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience. And I, I just, I threw a softball out there. I just said, you know, are you finishing your night shift? Have you been working all night? Or are you just getting started for the morning or for the day? Because it was that time of night or time of morning. And, uh, and his response was just, uh. And, uh, and, and that was the end of my witness uh, to this driver. Um, this was not a story of do as I did, but uh, I just went back to reading my Bible. I think I decided that maybe we didn't speak the same language. Um, and this topic brings up those kinds of interactions and can make us uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. Some of you might not identify as Christians and you're here this morning. We're glad that you are here. But Honestly, you may find the whole idea of claiming the truth that we do as Christians say that we have found the truth and calling other people to submit to it is actually relatively offensive and arrogant. At the very least, it's uncomfortable. I think of as the book of Acts continues, Paul in his great trial before King Agrippa, he he persuades him about his faith and then Agrippa says, Paul, in such a short time, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says to him so unabashedly, I wish that you were as I am, except for these chains. And the reality is, is that as Christians, and this isn't some secret, we actually long for everyone that we know to come to have faith in Jesus Christ and to know life in him. That's what we believe is good for everyone that we see. And that doesn't jive very well with the cultural norms of the day. In postmodern culture where truth is relative, in a culture that prioritizes tolerance above everything else, understood as basically uh, backing off claims to ultimate truth. So it can make us uncomfortable for that reason, if you're looking at it through from that lens. But on the other hand, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, it, it often can make us uncomfortable for other reasons. We might feel guilt and shame over the fact that we know this is a part of our vocation as the people of God, but honestly, we don't really take it up that much. We're too frightened, perhaps, or just too preoccupied with the busyness of life as as we experience it to take this on. And so we feel guilty for not doing so. So it can make us feel uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. 
as, as possible it is, as it is that it makes you uncomfortable this morning, uh, or any of us, I, I want to say that it, it nonetheless remains an essential dimension of our vocation as followers of Jesus, of our King, that bearing witness matters, matters deeply in the world in which we live. And it matters greatly in light of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus that we have sung about already this morning. So I want us to see as we open up to Acts chapter 17 and the Apostle Paul's encounter in the city of Athens, I want us to learn some things from his encounter in Athens that I hope will help us as we think about growing in bearing witness, however uncomfortable we may be with that idea. So I'll give you six things this morning. The first thing is notice the context for Paul's witness. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. One Roman satirist quipped that it was easier to find a god than a man in the city of Athens. Athens was filled with innumerable temples, shrines, statues, idols, and religious devotion at altars and the like. We all know about the impressive Parthenon, the temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. I was blown away by that on my trip to Athens in 1995. I know our more recent short-term missions trip to Athens got to go visit the Parthenon as well. But Athens was filled with many more less well-known temples as well. All the gods in the Greek pantheon had some kind of representation in Athens. It was a place for worship. And into this idolatry-saturated context, Paul bears witness to the Lord Jesus. Thinking about his context, what was the effect of the context? You saw it in verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him. This word is often used, this kind of idea around being provoked of, of God's holy response in the Old Testament to his people's idolatry. When they would give allegiance to another God, the one true God was provoked with a kind of holy jealousy. It's the kind of provocation that would be appropriate if one saw one's spouse on a, out on a date with someone else, entering some foreign allegiance into a relationship that was defined by exclusivity. And it's the abhorrence at the introduction of another into that exclusive relationship that is what provokes God when he sees his own people's idolatry. And honestly, I think the same dynamic is going on here with the Apostle Paul. He's provoked. These creatures made in the image of God who are created to give glory to the one true God are falling down and, and, and giving their allegiance to idols. And it provokes a kind of holy zeal as Paul sees this violation of what God is due en masse in the city around him. It doesn't just rise, arise out of an agitation for what will rightly belong to God, but I would say as well, we could say that, that the provocation comes out of what is good for people out of a love for the people that Paul sees in this city filled with idols. Because idols never give life, they always enslave, they always diminish. And so Paul is provoked within his spirit. Like Paul in ancient Athens, uh, we who live in this Athens of America, in Boston today, uh, also live in a context that is full of idols. Our city shares in the common idolatry of money and possessions and sex and fame. As with any city in the Western world, 
But Boston also has its own, I would say, distinct idols. These are good things, by the way, things that are a gift to the broader culture. But when they become ultimate things, they can begin to enslave. The idol of knowledge. Consider all of the universities and colleges. Uh, consider just how the topic around education uh, bears down upon families raising children in this city. And how when you meet people who don't live in this city and talk to them about their own kids, it's just a different kind of, uh, you realize we're swimming in a different water here. There's the idol of technology. We're known as the Silicon Valley of the East. And then there's also the idol of liberty. This is the birthplace, after all, of American freedom. So we see idolatry around us and in us. And the question I want to ask in this first point about the context is, does it provoke something in our own hearts? When we look around the world, when we look around our city and our neighborhood, perhaps our workplace, is something in our heart provoked? Is there a sense of zeal that's stirred up? Or are we just numb to the context? Writing in 1961, John Stott, the great leader of the evangelical movement in the latter half of the 20th century, at least one of the great leaders, wrote this. He said, how is the Christian to react when faced with the opposition of the world? He is certainly not to retaliate, nor is he to lick his wounds in self-pity, nor is he to withdraw into safe and sheltered seclusion away from the disagreeable enmity of the world. No, he is bravely to bear witness to Jesus Christ before the, before the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you provoked by the idolatry around us to bear witness to Jesus? The second point being so provoked, we notice the target of Paul's witness. And this is fairly straightforward. He engages everyone, everyone that he can. Look at verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Paul was targeting everyone that he could to bear witness to Jesus, the king. He also ends up addressing the Areopagus, the council of Athens that by that time was essentially a regulatory and judicial committee on culture, education, religion, economics, essentially everything that had to do with life, common life in the city of Athens. And it had formal judicial power as well. And Paul, notice, didn't go to the Areopagus, the council, uh, the Areopagus council voluntarily. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This was involuntary. Didn't matter. He still bears witness. Still what he thinks he's called to do. His bearing witness, his target is everyone that he can. Anyone that he can get an audience with. Paul wants to take this message of life through Jesus. He didn't see the idolatry of Athens and then sit back. But provoked with a holy zeal, he went to people in many different places in the city. The synagogue, the bustling marketplace, and finally the Areopagus to share about Jesus. I just want to ask this question. Do we take the gospel to everyone that we encounter? To the marketplace, to the universities, to the religious, to the non-religious, to the poor, to the rich, to the broken, and to the proud. And I realize we all struggle with this call to bear witness. Perhaps one way of just trying to bring this home to your life and mine more is, can you think who might God be placing in your life, even in the week ahead, 
so that you could bear witness to them. Not in a bludgeoning way, not in a way that's some decontextualized from a genuine heart of love. But do we think about that? The target of Paul's witness, the target of our witness as the church is really everyone. There's no one who isn't targeted by the glorious gospel of Jesus. The third thing, having seen the context and the target, we see the content in verse 18 of Paul's witness. Some said, what does this babbler wish, wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The book of Acts is emphatic about the content of our witness. It is a witness to Jesus and the resurrection, as we see in Paul here in Athens. I would encourage you to read the book of Acts maybe over the next month and just take note of all the times you watch them bearing witness and how so centrally Jesus and the resurrection rises to the surface. It is what their witness is about and pointing to. Just one example in the first sermon in Acts, in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, Peter focuses in on Jesus and then says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. The Christian witness is about Jesus and his resurrection, about his position as Lord over all the world, a Lord who is, shares the identity, the divine identity with his father, who is also Lord, as our text refers to him, as Paul does later in his speech to the Areopagus. A Lord who is summoning people to repentance, to obedience, to come under his rule that they might have life and forgiveness of sins through him. Paul's witness to the synagogue and the marketplace is about Jesus and the resurrection. And then when he gets dragged to the Areopagus, Actually, his witness doesn't change. It remains centrally focused on Jesus and the resurrection. He says that the God who is creator, sustainer, ruler, and father of all humankind, verse 31, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He points to Jesus and to Jesus' resurrection even in front of the Areopagus. This is the witness. This is the content. This is what we bear witness to. The resurrection of Jesus is the climax of God's great work with creation that begins long ago in the beginning and responds through the call of Abraham and the nation of Israel. And we get all the way to Jesus and his death, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is the climax of all that God is doing that assures the world that God's promise to create a new heavens and a new earth and to redeem a people for himself is actually coming to pass. This is the content of Paul's witness in Athens. And, you know, I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons we struggle with bearing witness is because we get confused about the content. What is it that I'm supposed to bear witness to? We get muddled about that. And I hope in some ways that this point clarifies that for us as we think about the different contexts to which we've been sent. We serve a crucified, risen, ascended king. And from his current place of rule, he is summoning the world to obedience to himself. And we are called to bear witness to him. It's not about us. We're called like John the Baptist. May we decrease and may, may he increase. We want to get out of the way, but we want to point as witnesses to Jesus in his life-giving power and love. 
this witness, of course, this, that the way that we deliver this content of our witness uh, changes according to context, as Julian mentioned last week. And Paul's speech to the Areopagus is a brilliant example of contextually sensitive witness. He says, what you worship as unknown, that I am proclaiming to you. He goes on to speak about the identity of God who is Lord. And then about God's work in this one man that he has appointed to bring judgment of the world in righteousness. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Paul uses their own poets and temples to evoke a sense of connection with their heart for something transcendent and beyond themselves. And then he reveals to them the particularity, which is, of course, the great scandal of the Christian witness, the particularity of this one man that God has appointed to be judge of all and his resurrection from the dead. This is not the only way to bear witness to Jesus and his resurrection. He is alive, and we speak of his reality in many different ways, in the way that we talk and the way that we act as well. And I want to just ask a couple of questions of you. How has Jesus rescued you? How has he shown you grace? How has he satisfied your longings? How has he healed your shame and guilt? How has he carried your burdens? How has he given you a sense of identity that is not subject to your successes or failures? To how what people think about you, but is rooted in something that is so much more certain and secure that gives you a sense of freedom and joy even in the midst of pain? How has this Jesus uh, connected your heart to that which gives you a purpose and a focus in life? If you are here this morning and you love Jesus and you know his love for you, you actually have answers to these questions. Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about them. But you do. You have a story to tell. You have a testimony to share. You have a witness to provide to the world around you. And it's centered on Jesus and his resurrection. Can you tell that story? Fourth, we see the aim of Paul's witness. It is repentance. Verse 30, this great God has looked over times of ignorance, but... He is now commanding all people everywhere to repent. Uh, This doesn't seem like the smartest thing to say to a council that has authority over you at the Areopagus, but Paul is undeterred. He knows that he's called to speak about them coming to know this Jesus, and so he does. And Christian witness is not a sales pitch. It's a summons from the world's true king to come under his rule. It's a summons To lay down one's idols, whatever those idols might be, and to cling to the one true God who is manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a summons to follow this one as king and no one else. And we articulate that summons, in a sense, through repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn around, to change one's mind, to let go of the way of life that you were living before and to embrace the one true way of life that Jesus has come to bring us and lead us into. Look, however much we talk about the beauty and coherence of the Christian faith in our culture, and I hope that we do because I am fully convinced that everything good and beautiful and true finds its fulfillment and even its source 
within the reality of God's creation to new creation narrative in the book, in in the scriptures, centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I do hope that we go around our culture and we speak of the beauty and goodness of the Lord Jesus and of all that God is doing in and through him in a way that connects the dots with the longings of the hearts of those around us. What you worship is unknown. What you long for in beauty or in truth or in justice, we actually can show you what that is. We can reveal to you who that is. And that's such good news. And we don't do that from a place of being above. We do that from a place of humility, knowing that we have been rescued by him, not because of anything that we deserve, but because of his grace and mercy at work in our lives. However much we offer that, however much we say what you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you, I want you to know that it's not really Christian witness until there is a call to repentance. A call to a decision. A call to turn. And I'm not suggesting to you that that call needs to come in every conversation that you have with someone at all. I trust the Holy Spirit's guidance in each one of us as we seek to bear witness to the world around us that we will know when that time comes. But I just want to say that Paul gives gives us an example here that his aim is repentance. Because why? That's Jesus's aim. Jesus loves this world and the people in it and he knows that for them to come to life they must let go of their idols and embrace him as king it's a call to yield fifth we see the response in verses 32 and through 34 now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked verse 32 but others said we will hear you again about this so Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There are these three responses. Some people mocked. In verse 18, they call Paul a babbler. That's not a term of endearment. This was a term to say you are unsophisticated and incoherent here in the home of philosophy in the ancient world. He was a lightweight, they were saying. So some mock, but look at what others want in verse 32. They want to hear more. We will hear you again about this. They haven't yet heard enough. They haven't yet had their questions answered. But hearing of this power of God and the God who made them and the resurrection and the one man, they want to hear more about him. And this is the way many do respond to bearing witness. Their questions are valid and meaningful and should be uh, entertained and, and addressed thoughtfully and graciously. And when we bear witness, many will say, well, can you say more like this this group here? We, We want you to come back. Can we get lunch next week and keep this conversation going? Can we have coffee tomorrow and have a chat about this? I've got some questions. And then third, some believed. Verse 34, some men joined him and believed. Now, I wonder, are we surprised by by this? Are we surprised when we bear witness and some people believe? I think if we are surprised, it's usually an indication of the fact that we've lost some kind of belief and conviction in the power of God. God is at work. He's at work in our world, bringing people to himself. And he's using our agency, empowered by the Spirit, to bring that about. Let's not be surprised. He is alive and well. Sixth and finally, the cost. We see it in three ways in this text. Uh, Paul was by himself when he got to Athens. 
And Paul was an intellectual. Athens was a pretty amazing place. I'm not sure if Paul had been there before. I'm sure he'd read about it, studied it. He could have just used this as an opportunity for personal enrichment and kind of religious devotion tourism. Could have gone to the Parthenon and been impressed with the structure. He could have just chatted with some of the Epicureans and Stoics without saying much about who he was. Could have just used it as a moment of being a tourist. He was waiting for Timothy and Silas, whom he'd left in Berea, so he had some time to kill. Paul had been running at a pretty hard pace as we followed him and not having an easy time of it. Another option would have been for him just to use this time to just rest and relax. You know, a little time for just taking care of himself. Now, I want to say to you, neither of those things would be inherently wrong. It's not wrong to be a tourist, and it's certainly not wrong to rest and relax. Our God is gracious to us and gives us these gifts to enjoy. But it did cost Paul his time. Notice that. He's provoked because of the idols around him. And instead of being a tourist, instead of just resting, Paul continues to bear witness to Jesus and his resurrection. It costs him his time. You know, in a way, when I was conversing with God that morning in the lift a couple of weeks ago, and admittedly an unsuccessful attempt here, but the, the dialogue I was having was, I actually am just enjoying what I'm doing, God. Do I really need to interrupt that to try to make this foray? And the response back in that moment was, yeah, actually you do. And it didn't bear any fruit, but I wanted to make an effort in response to that. And it costs something. It costs us something any time that, that we do this, that we bear witness. There's a second cost, and we saw it in the response. They call him a babbler in verse 18. And they mock him. And I wonder sometimes if this is the cost that we really find too hard to bear. Honestly. We want to be sophisticated. We want to appear that we've got it all together. We want to you know, show our neighbors and people around us that we really fit in. And we have a, a place at the table in the culture of the day. And, and honestly, if we start to speak about this man, Jesus, who was resurrected from the dead, I wonder if we get concerned that we'll just be marked as somehow closed-minded or bigoted or archaic. You're one of those people? I don't get that. And we fear being stigmatized and mocked. I say to that fear, and I say this gently, I hope, but it's Jesus' word, so I feel like I can bring it to this moment. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, so will the Son of Man be ashamed of him when he comes with his holy angels in his Father's glory. I say that gently because I think Jesus would want it to be said gently in a way, but Jesus says it bluntly and directly as well. He was willing to take the cross on our behalf, and he asks us to be willing to be fools for his sake in a culture that often does look at those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus as closed-minded or bigoted. You know, there are winds within our culture that our gospel is directly at odds with. There are other winds in our culture that our gospel affirms and, and says these are actually native to what we proclaim. But it's a challenging thing, and Paul actually bears the cost of being mocked. It's not all that he bears there's a third thing as well, and that's risking his life. I didn't draw attention to this, but in verses 19 and 20, and just look back with me at the text as we near, near the end, they drag him before the Areopagus, and may we know this new teaching that it is that you are presenting. For some, you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. It's actually a way of translating this. It's a little bit more direct, like we demand to know. Um, 
everyone in Athens would have remembered because it was part of the, the collective consciousness, the trial of Socrates that had happened centuries before. Socrates was tried by the council in Athens and found guilty and given the death penalty for teaching new and strange gods. There's an allusion here in verses 19 and 20 to the trial of Socrates that suggests that Paul's defense before the Areopagus is not merely a chance to share with the religiously curious something that they'd like to hear, but rather that he's giving a defense for his own life, that his life hangs in the balance of what he's to say to the Areopagus. And that allusion to the trial of Socrates would evoke in anyone reading this in the first century the context that Socrates lost his life for preaching similar realities of strange and new deities. That is to say that the cost of bearing witness, yeah, it's being mocked and dishonored. Yeah, it's actually an invasion on our time and things we might rather set out to do. But fundamentally, it's the cost of our lives. Uh, writing on the book of Revelation, the great New Testament scholar, now retired Richard Bauckham, writes these words. Revelation is a book that's centered around the idea of witness. The word witness in Greek is martyreo, from which we get our word martyr. This isn't an accident that to bear witness means the possibility of giving up one's life. And I realize that most of us here aren't thinking that that's the consequence if we were to speak of Jesus in the week ahead. But there is something deep down which unites these two realities, not just linguistically, but in reality. This is what Bauckham writes about the book of Revelation. He says, the message of the book is that if Christians are faithful to their calling to bear witness to the truth against the claims of the beast, they will provoke a conflict with the beast so critical as to be a struggle to the death. Therefore, the alternative becomes the utterly stark one, worship the beast or face martyrdom. It is not a literal prediction that every faithful Christian will in fact be put to death, but it does require that every faithful Christian must be prepared to die. The call to conquer allows no middle ground where Christians may hope to avoid death by compromising with the beast. In the situation John envisages, martyrdom belongs as it were to the essential nature of faithful witness. Not every faithful witness will actually be put to death, but all faithful witness requires the endurance and the faithfulness that will accept martyrdom if it comes. We could say that it requires every Christian already to accept the martyrdom that faithful witness may incur. Paul's life, honestly, before the Areopagus, hung in the balance. For him, that was nothing new. But there is a sense when we bear witness to the one true king that there is a conflict with the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the call upon us is to be willing to lose our life for his sake. So why do it as I close? Conviction. Why didn't Paul just rest up when he got to Athens and wait for his buddies? Why didn't he get quiet and try to figure out a way to be less confrontational when he went before the Areopagus? Why did he keep going when he faced sleepless nights and shipwrecks, when he was stoned in Lystra? Conviction. 
Paul had met this Jesus that he proclaimed personally and powerfully on the road to Damascus. He had encountered him. He had been blinded by the light of Jesus. He had been spoken to and commissioned by this Jesus to go and bear witness to him, to kings and to Israel and to the nations. Paul had a deep conviction that the sharing of this gospel to the world around him was the best hope for the world. And he knew that Jesus whom he proclaimed was a Jesus who could transform lives because his own life had been changed from the inside out. Paul had been radically turned around. He had experienced a radical repentance and renewal through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he had come to know, taste, and see that this Jesus was in fact good for the world. It was conviction that drove Paul to open his mouth when he went into Athens, in the marketplace, and in the synagogue, and before the council at the Areopagus. It was conviction that led Paul to put his life on the line in order to speak the good news of Jesus to the world that desperately needed to hear it. And I speak and preach to myself this morning as much as to you and ask, do we share that conviction? Which enables us to take up the cost and the cross in order to bear faithful witness into our city and our world of the one true king who is summoning everyone everywhere to repentance that they might have forgiveness of sins and life in his name. Our conviction, which is given by the Holy Spirit, is to be strong and sure in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian and secular to say, no, but we know him. We've seen him. We've encountered him. We've been changed by him. And we will speak of him to all of you who will listen, not with a berating sense of superiority, but with a humble sense of plea and appeal and grace and willingness to die in service of you that you might hear his call to life. Do we have that conviction today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you, our risen King, and we thank you for your resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Give us that conviction in the truth and reality of your Son and the good news proclaimed through him that we would not be ashamed of your gospel, because we know it is your power for salvation for everyone who believes. And Lord, we thank you that at the heart of this gospel, there is your son, merciful, gracious, patient, whose love could not be expressed in any greater way. And we pray that his love would win again our hearts this morning. And renew us as his witnesses in this city and the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.